Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm joined now by a member of President Trump's legal term, Chief Counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. Uh, good to see you as always. Lionel Hutt's attorney at law. Here's my card. It turns into a sponge when you put it in water. Should we take that tweet from the president as confirmation that the president is under investigation? Yeah, but what is truth? If you follow me. So the president said, I am under investigation, even though he isn't under investigation? There's the truth and the truth. Well, I wish it were that simple, but, uh, you know, with all due respect, the president said, I am being investigated in a tweet. And but you're his attorney. You're saying that the president, when he said that, was not accurate. Have you ever forgotten anything? Well, if you never forget anything, tell me this. What color tie am I wearing? I'm not wearing a tie at all. Okay, I mean, I, I don't think it's simple, but I don't think we're getting anywhere, so let me move on. I mean, this might, is this not frustrating for you as an attorney to have a client that is sharing information with the world that's not accurate? Don't you worry. I've argued in front of every judge in the state, often as a lawyer. I went home with a waitress. The way I always do. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 20 of Intercepted. Generally speaking, I mean, this conversation about Russian interference in our elections, there's 16 uh, intelligence agencies that say that they did. Uh, the former FBI director said that without a doubt the Russians interfered. I understand. I've seen the reports. Uh, does the president share uh, those views? I, I've not sat down and asked him about a specific reaction to him, so I'd be glad to touch base and get back to you. Yeah. Didn't you say it was fake news, Sean? Donald Trump and his inner circle have all lawyered up, and the investigation is moving forward into any potential wrongdoing relating to Russian officials potentially talking to members of the Trump campaign in the weeks and months leading up to the presidential election. There was a skirmish this past weekend over what Trump meant when he tweeted that there is an investigation into him after he had just spent weeks and weeks claiming that fired FBI Director James Comey had told him three times that there wasn't an investigation into him. Watching Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, on television over the weekend was at times just plain bizarre, 
and like a lot of things these days, sort of parallel university. So he's being investigated for taking the action that the attorney general, deputy attorney general, recommended him to take by the agency who recommended the termination. So that's the constitutional threshold question here. That's why, I, as I said, no well, investigation. I, what, what's, what's the question? I mean, no, you, sure. you've, stated, you've stated some facts. First of all, you've now said that he is being yeah. investigated after saying that you didn't. No. You, you just said, no, he's sir, not being that he's being, you just said that he's being investigated. No, Chris, I said that the invent anything. Let me be crystal clear so you completely understand. We have not received, nor are we aware of any investigation of the president of the United States. Sir, you just said Period. two times that he's being investigated. While all eyes in Washington remain focused on the Russia investigation, the existence of yet another massive data breach came to light. It wasn't so much of a breach as it was an apparent epic act of recklessness, carelessness. A California-based security researcher says that Republican-linked election databases were inadvertently exposed to the entire Internet, potentially violating the privacy of almost every single registered voter in the United States. This exposed information, we understand, contained the sensitive personal details of more than 198 million American voters. We do not know exactly how this happened, but it does appear to be some sort of a massive mistake. Joining me now to break this down is my colleague, Sam Biddle. He's the technology reporter for The Intercept. Sam, welcome back to Intercepted. Glad to be here. So this news that's uh, developing this week that a Republican contractor's database was left exposed on the internet and it's upwards of a couple hundred million people's data has been exposed. What, what's the takeaway from this? What does it mean? Sure. So uh, very importantly, this isn't a hack. There's no evidence that uh, this data was improperly accessed or stolen or downloaded or proliferated in any way. That doesn't mean that no one did access it. It was not uh, the result of a breach. Basically, someone left their front door open and anyone with the URL could have downloaded terabytes of information uh, detailing not just the demographic information of 198 million uh, American potential voters, but their sort of ideological proclivities and leanings. Because it would show their voter registration. Yes, but actually there was a lot more to it than just uh, what was on paper. Um, Using proprietary computer modeling, uh, the details of which are a little sketchy, uh, this company, DeepRoot Analytics, uh, actually had scored all 198 million people in the database on uh, almost 50 different belief categories, like whether they support STEM job training or whether they uh, you know, would support the repeal of Obamacare, that sort of thing. Um, so really not just your address and your age and your race, which again is sensitive enough on its own, but your opinions and your personally held beliefs. What were they basing that on? It's a mixture of sort of uh, educated guesswork and old-fashioned uh, phone polling, you know, the, the, and focus group kind of work. A lot of it is extrapolated. So it's not like they contacted or actually gotten responses from 198 million people. It's computer modeling. So it's a algorithmic uh, guess, basically. But the fact that it exists, I think, is surprising to most people to know that they have tabs being kept on them. And, you know, the the headlines, as I saw them, were focused on a Republican contractor's database was left exposed basically for anybody that wanted to walk up and access that information. But it's not just Republicans or conservatives whose 
data was essentially made available to the public because of this, well, fuck up. Yeah, right. So DeepRoot doesn't just work with the RNC. Their, their raison d'etre is to help target ads, uh, TV ads. So um, if you are uh, ExxonMobil and you want to make sure that people who are very skeptical of ExxonMobil are seeing your ads in order so that they could be convinced, you might turn to DeepRoot Analytics so you would know exactly when to buy ads, where to buy them, so that you're reaching exactly the eyeballs you want to. For everyday people listening to this, what's the thing they should worry about given that this front door was basically left open with a lot of what appears to be sensitive data about just under 200 million voters in this country? Well, it would certainly be a boon to anyone who uh, has a streak for identity theft. Um, I mean, personally identifying information is often parlayed into a greater identity theft attack. It would also help anyone who wants to uh, undertake a spear phishing campaign. If someone knows that you are, uh, you know, inclined to uh, subscribe to the Sierra Club newsletter or something, you get an email from them that's actually from a hacker, you might be more inclined to uh, click it. Um, I think really it's more eye-opening in terms of, wow, I didn't realize that all this stuff was being tracked about me, that the odds of this being this resulting in a identity theft for one person among 198 million is probably on the lower end, but this should really be a wake-up call to how what kind of data is being collected about us, how it's being used, how it's being sold, and why aren't there more laws regulating this? Before I let you go, I wanted to just uh, get a quick update from you. Um, you were uh, one of the four reporters that broke this big story based on this top secret NSA document that we got anonymously that showed Russian cyber attack efforts targeting software companies that provide services to the U.S. voting system. And our understanding of it at the beginning, this software was used in at least eight states. Uh, but the Bloomberg News Agency, after that story was published, started digging, and it looks now like it's uh, as many as 39 states that were using this software from VR systems. Now, your role in that story, of course, was uh, you were interviewing experts to get analysis on what the significance of the document was uh, to this broader system, which is why I wanted to ask you what the significance of this Bloomberg reporting uh, is that it was used in 39 states. So what's incredible about the way America votes uh, is how decentralized it is and how little each state has to do with the state next to it in terms of how votes are actually tabulated, how voters are registered. So the fact that one contractor could be used so extensively and be so vulnerable to outside threat um, without really anyone noticing until it's too late is a big deal. And everyone I talked to uh, highlighted that, that having a decentralized voting system where there's not just one entity collecting and tabulating all the votes is a strength. Um, in some ways, it's harder to hack. But when it's so decentralized and so uh, in, uh, unorganized, uh, for lack of a better word, then it's really worrying. What is the significance of the fact that there is no standard in this country, uh, state to state, they, the states make their own decisions on what the standards are for the mechanisms and technology that are used for voting. Right. So uh, a big worry there is that because each state is going to do elections its own way uh, and each polling station is going to have differing levels of scrutiny and, and carefulness, uh, it makes it easier for outside agents, you know, uh, whether they be uh, Russians or Chinese or anyone, um, to, uh, to get in there. Um, it, it's possible to penetrate a company and, uh, you know, it, it's not like you're taking on the FEC or something, right? These are small 
relatively small organizations, small entities that are going to have, you know, no more security precautions than uh, you know any other small business, really. Right, and I and I think, and I've been saying this since that initial and top secret NSA document story came out that I think a lot of analysts and many of them motivated by their own partisan concerns are just looking at the Russian trees in a forest filled with voting system insecurities in this country. And the, the biggest takeaway for me on this is not that Russian military intelligence is trying to penetrate the systems of companies that service the election, but that our electoral system is highly vulnerable to hackers or intruders of a variety of stripes, uh, including non-nation state actors with not that great of uh, phishing or hacking capabilities. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, it, it may very well be that um, Russian military intelligence was just brazen enough to have been caught or noticed uh, by the NSA, but the level of sophistication here would certainly not rule out nation state actors from really any nation state. Sam Biddle, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Sam Biddle is a technology reporter at The Intercept. Well, we talk a lot about hacking and cyber breaches on this program, and we do a lot of reporting on it at The Intercept. But in general, in this society, not nearly enough attention is given to what ordinary people can and are doing to preserve their privacy. The Intercept recently launched a video series called Cybersecurity for the People, and it features our resident computer security engineer, Michael Lee. Law enforcement at protests use tools to try and spy on people's phones. If you get arrested, your phone might get searched. And so if you're going to a protest, the first thing that you should do to secure your phone is make sure that you lock it with a passcode. Because when your fingerprint can unlock your phone, people can just take your hand and push it on your phone to unlock your phone. This isn't true with a passcode. They need to actually have you cooperate. That was my colleague, Micah Lee. You can see that video and all the others in the series, Cybersecurity for the People, at theintercept.com. Now, among the groups in this country that are fighting to preserve people's privacy, particularly online, of course, is the American Civil Liberties Union, but also a lesser-known group is doing incredibly important work, and that is the Library Freedom Project. That's a partnership of librarians, technologists, attorneys, privacy advocates, all united in trying to confront and ultimately stop digital surveillance. We're joined now by the founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, Allison Macrina. Allison, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Talk about the work that you do with the organization you uh, founded, the Library Freedom Project. Library Freedom Project is an organization that I started a few years ago that's devoted to the promotion and protection of privacy and intellectual freedom, um, mainly in libraries. I started working on this when I was a librarian outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And when the Snowden revelations came out, I started thinking about the privacy problem 
much more deeply than I had before in a professional context. Librarians have a really great history of caring about privacy and and fighting for intellectual freedom and all these wonderful democratic ideals. But what was different to me after Snowden was that obviously we see now that the problem is much more massive. And I started hearing directly from members of my community about how they wanted to learn about protecting their privacy. So it had a, a really bold effect on... Um, on people's feelings about their own internet use. So I had a personal interest in information security and in free and open source software. I was the technology librarian, so I had some tech background. And so I started teaching some computer privacy classes. They got to be pretty big. And I, from there, decided to build something that was more of a a train-the-trainers kind of operation for librarians. So I connected with my local ACLU, which was the Massachusetts affiliate. And so we put together this little crack team of privacy people, and we basically made a little privacy roadshow. And we started going to libraries, teaching librarians about what they can do to protect their patrons, what's going on in the courts with regard to surveillance law and policy, what the kind of corporate digital capitalism landscape is like, and then what are the tools that they can use and the best practices that they can employ to help um, members of the community protect themselves. And also, you, you've you described yourself as a, a radical librarian. And, um, you know, had I not worked with Amy Goodman at Democracy Now!, I don't <laughs> think I would have known this kind of alternative history of librarians in the post-9-11 America and how librarians fought against the Patriot Act, not just the passage of the Patriot Act, but once it was implemented, librarians coming up with creative ways to ensure the privacy of people's records of what they've been reading and checking out of the library. I think of librarian, I think of good old Mrs. Stelsel, my librarian at my high school, who literally looked like the church lady. You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? Where is she? She's just about to close up the library. You know, you're a young, radical activist, and it's like, young people going uh, to be nuns. You, you really don't see it all that often. And, and maybe this is just that I'm, uh, you know, I have a misconception about librarians, but I, I, I'm fascinated by the institution of librarian as freedom fighter. So maybe talk about that kind of post 9-11 evolution in the field of library science. Well, I think just like nuns, you know, you, you, you only need to scratch the surface and you find that there's a, a really rich, radical tradition with librarians. And I wouldn't discount Miss Stencil so fast, right? I mean, part of the Part of what we enjoy, I think, as librarians is this ability to be more unassuming radicals. The profession itself is, has always been pretty uh, open to progressives and far leftists. Part of the reason I joined the profession is because of what you said about the Patriot Act. And I think a lot of there was a real resurgence in interest in librarianship around that time. But that's not at all where it began. I mean, you know, librarians have been um, fighting back against overbroad and unlawful government surveillance for decades. You know, they were some of the staunchest opponents of the House on American Activities Committee. They wrote a fantastic document in defense of intellectual freedom and privacy called uh, the Freedom to Read Statement. And that was in the 1950s. And so part of why they've been kind of ignored in the landscape of all these activist issues is because they're largely a female profession. They're overworked and underpaid. 
They provide a lot of essential social services that have been cut in the last few decades. And so they don't have this really strong voice in the fight, but they're doing the work on the ground and they have been for a very long time. What do librarians think of sort of what's happening with issues of privacy in our country? Not to mention basic literacy issues with our president, but that's a different uh, that's a totally different discussion. They're concerned about the players, the adversaries in the erosion of privacy, what kind of effect they have on other intellectual freedom issues. For example, if digital capitalism is creating shadow profiles of all of us, it's not just that it's a problem because they're collecting all this information about us. It's a problem because now they have the ability to manipulate us on an individual level and at a broad, at a scale. They're also concerned about having a commons that's free from corporate interference and from government law enforcement and intelligence agency malfeasance. One of the reasons why this makes so much sense to them is because that's what the library really is. I mean, it's the only true public commons that we that we have. And they see the Internet as an obvious extension of that, but that it's being tainted by all of these big, powerful players who are trying to control it. I wanted to ask you, because I, I had the pleasure recently of uh, watching one of your presentations about privacy. You and I both uh, spoke at a wonderful Catholic church in um, in New Jersey, and I really was kind of in awe because you had a very mixed crowd. There were young, tech-savvy people there, and there were also like very uh, elderly people who are very engaged on a social and political level, and they are using the internet, but not the most tech-savvy crowd or generation you know, around today. But you gave a very accessible presentation for how people can protect their privacy and their communications. Can you give a kind of brief overview of how you talk to ordinary people about protecting their privacy, both on their computers, but also on their uh, mobile devices? For the most part, you know, ordinary people, non-technical people, they have a really strong interest in learning this stuff, but no one has really taken the time to talk to them about it in without using jargon or anything like that. I try to focus mainly on the things that I know that pretty much everybody can get a handle on. So signal is something that the barrier to entry is very low. I mean, in some ways it doesn't function as well as other messaging apps that folks might be used to using, but it's getting better all the time and it's getting even more feature rich, like it just added video calling. And so in a lot of ways, Signal is kind of a good gateway drug to other security tools because it's it's so simple. It shows people that they can, if they take this one step, it's doing a lot and they're capable of doing more. And then I try to focus just on some best practices. And I want people to think about the relationship that they have to all these private companies and government entities that are collecting and using their data. When I really focus on these relationships, who these powerful entities are, how they're trying to shape public opinion, what this information might be used for, especially in Trump's America with a Sessions DOJ and the expansion of law enforcement and all this, that tends to be mostly what people kind of come for. You know, they want to know who's behind all this stuff. And in a lot of ways, I think when you help them understand the landscape, they're more willing to take the steps because usually it was just like their nephew who has a computer science degree who made a bunch of changes to their computer that they didn't understand and they don't want to use any of it because they don't get why it matters or, or anything like that. What's your broader advice to uh, people given that you, you mentioned Jeff Sessions, but also the 
you know, the, the, what we already know about the surveillance state, about the FBI. What In general, what would you advise people that are working on immigration issues, race issues, anti-war issues? Like what, what are the most important things for people to be aware of and, and consider on a technical digital communications level? We really have to take some steps to secure our information now, um, given what we know is is likely to happen in the very near future, because it's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube after that. I would also say, though, that it is possible to make yourself more secure against these adversaries. And it really it depends a little bit on which ones you're most concerned about. You know, some people their fears might be the the Sessions DOJ and, wh- and what that means in terms of law enforcement's ability to subpoena information from your carrier um, or from private companies. Some people might be more worried about the private data collection, the Robert Mercers of the world, the kind of, you know, big data, billion dollar operations that are creating shadow profiles on everyone and using it to manipulate public opinion. But we need to start thinking about this stuff. And it is definitely possible to make some changes in our behavior and protect ourselves, but we can't proceed as if uh, these things are not uh, threats to our movements because, you know, you create enough chaos and you totally disassemble the movement. That's what COINTELPRO is all about. And we have the capabilities that exist now um, really put COINTELPRO to shame. What's your assessment of the security of the data that the president of the United States is walking around with based on what we publicly know about Trump's social media habits and the devices he uses? (laughs) You know, the only way that it could be worse, I think, is if he had one of those exploding Samsung phones, you know, (laughs) like and he might. Honestly, I don't actually know what the make of his Android phone is, but Android is the insecure mobile platform. I highly doubt that he's given that thing over to somebody to run updates. Frankly, I'm shocked that no one has hacked his phone yet, given his practices, you know. Um, well, they, well they, may, they, they actually may have. Um, they may and, have, I right. Mean, we, you don't, hacks yeah. aren't always announced uh, in <laughs> right, real time. True. We've joked that the password is probably all caps, just America, but it also, it could be like he, maybe somebody Misspelled. told misspelled. Right. Uh, but it could be that somebody said, hey, you need a passphrase and one that you really, really can uh, remember. So now it could be grab him by the pussy. Right. Right. It, now, right, would right. that be a secure if, mm-hmm. he, if he made the S into a dollar sign, the G was capitalized, the, then he used EM instead of them. Would that be a secure passphrase? You would need some more entropy. Another way to think about that is randomness. And so, you know, for Trump to have a truly secure passphrase, I mean, one of the things he'd have to start with is nothing identifiable to him. So in some ways, a more secure passphrase would be like, I love Barack Obama or something (laughs) like that, you know, because no one would ever... So if it, don't so, use that passphrase, people. It's not secure. Wait, so but if Trump, okay, let's say so you're you're talking to Trump and you're trying to come up with a passphrase, but it also has to be one that he can remember. So let's mm-hmm. say he thinks it's really funny your suggestion, because of course he doesn't love Barack Obama, the Muslim from Kenya, <laughs> um, and and he says, okay, I want a way to use the passphrase. I love Barack Obama at, to like secure my uh, you know my Twitter account. Put aside for a second two factor verification. Let's just talk about that passphrase. I love Barack Obama. What should he do to kind of spice it up to make it more difficult for somebody to to guess or to have a, a machine rapidly guess that password? Really, the way to make a secure and memorable passphrase, you want to use something called the diceware method. 
Sometimes it's called the XKCD method because it's based on a comic that XKCD published about how terrible everyone's passwords are. So you need a die, just a regular six-sided die. 20-sided die, I'm sorry, nerds, will not work. And you need the Diceware word list. Um, The Electronic Frontier Foundation has actually made a really great version of the Diceware word list. And it's basically about, it's a list, it's a little less than 8,000 words long. And every word has a corresponding five-digit number. And what you do is you take your die, you roll it five times, it gives you a number. Then you look on the list, you do a little control F to find the number. When you find your five-digit number, you look next to it, and whatever that word is, that's the first word in your passphrase. And so you can memorize a string of four or five words much more easily than you can memorize a jumble of letters, numbers, and symbols. And it's much more secure than what people typically do when they think they're creating a strong passphrase, which is, you know, I love Barack Obama with all the vowels removed and replaced by numbers or symbols. That's not actually that secure, and it's pretty difficult to remember. All right, Allison, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me. Allison Macrina is the founder and director of the library. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Freedom Project. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk to one of the founding hosts of the popular podcast, Chapel Trap House, Felix Biederman. We're going to talk about Twitter, the Democrats, Saudi Arabia, and much more. Stay with us. Okay, we are back here on Intercepted. And as many of you who listen to this show probably know, I love Twitter. Well, I shouldn't say I love Twitter. I use Twitter actively, and I have from very early on. But I have to say that Twitter is a vile cesspool uh, that many of us continue to willingly swim in all day, every day. Donald Trump certainly spends a disproportionate amount of his presidency tweeting about what he watches on television. 
Twitter is also a place that can win you immediate gratification. Oh, everybody loves me. Look at how many retweets I have. Look at how many likes I have. Uh, It could also subject you to a massive group pummeling of shame. This contradictory terrain of Twitter also brought together a ragtag crew of millennials who created and host the popular podcast Chapel Trap House. Uh, so Obama gave this this press conference the other day where he was like, "Oh, oh the lips were like, oh he's God. gonna kick the door yeah, open." Yeah. And there's so many like, people. Yo, yo, motherfuckers! <laughs> I love how, I love how they like they just betray their racism when they talk about Obama. They're like, "I can't wait till he comes in there and he has a fresh new fade." And <laughs> yeah. it's like, "What are you talking about, <laughs> you fucking well, weirdo?" He's not the black person of your fantasy, Tim Wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tim Wise. Like he's gonna go on there and he's gonna look directly in the camera and say, "Mr. Putin, you bitch, motherfucker." Also, Tim Wise could say. <laughs> (laughs) the (laughs) n-word on their show they shred both democrats and republicans they take on the so-called elite media and the punditocracy in this country but they also engage in deep dive analysis of weird twitter personalities and and twitter beefs they also have shown a remarkable ability to predict the outcome of electoral races And the show is not as simple as to be able to just categorize it as one thing. And what they definitely do all the time is piss people off. In fact, one of my favorite articles on Chapel Trap House was published last year by the conservative Catholic publication First Things. It was an article titled, Christians Stay Away from Irony Bros. And here's a passage from that piece. The Chapel guys are just as willing to attack the Clintons for their neoliberalism or the audience of Hamilton for enjoying a self-flattering, Whiggish retelling of history as they are to attack mainstream conservative pundits. They are just as likely to envision in detail the violent deaths of pundits on the left as they are to envision in detail the violent deaths of pundits on the right, all of which is okay because it's ironic. And because anyone who espouses any political or economic theory that has even a hint of neoliberalism is a hypocritical hack who deserves nothing but scorn. Like Holden Caulfield, the Chapel guys believe everyone is phony. Unlike Holden Caulfield, they are sometimes witty. No one escapes their destructive gaze. Joining me now is one of the original hosts of Chapo with that destructive gaze, Felix Biederman. Felix is also a freelance writer. Welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I can't recall an analog to what has sort of happened with with you guys. I mean, it's sort of obviously there's some bit of it that's uncharted territory, but you know, you guys have been written up in the New Yorker. You've had the right wing Catholic publication First <laughs> yeah. Things, uh, you know, basically say that you're corrupting the young minds of America with your w- with your show. What do you make of all this attention, both the negative and the fact that you have so many people that actually like what you do? I think two things are going on. I think for one, like podcasts are one of my favorite like pieces of media to consume because if you like the people doing it and you think they're interesting and funny and everything, it's like you're just listening to a great conversation with your friends. Most conversations we have are like people bitching about traffic or like how there are no bathrooms in Midtown or something. But For people who are a bit dislocated socially, which is very common nowadays, we live in a really isolated, fraught times for very many people, especially young people that listen to this. 
they're uncertain about their future. They're uncertain about what they're supposed to do because everything that seemed to work for their parents and even older siblings is not there for them and things are more socially atomized than ever. But if you can put your headphones in and you can listen to this conversation, you can laugh, you can smile, you can feel engaged with something on this personal level that you wouldn't quite feel in an article. And I think on the other hand, both many parts of the left and everyone who is now mad at us, they thought, well, these people are never really going to be close to power, but they're right about their prescription. The problems, they're all very funny and cool to talk to. And then I think after Sanders and after Corbyn and after when you you see a group of people, it goes from like, this is sort of silly, but it's cute. These I like these people too. This is something that people really identify with and they are going to take action based on it. They are going to vote a certain way. They are going to organize a certain way. It becomes very scary. To make leftism fun is, I think, very scary for some people. And the fact that we have this thing that is successful people do see it as bellwether in a way that i do not but it also inspires this this sort of almost deranged ire from uh the hashtag known as the resistance yeah. on on twitter like what what do you make of that phenomenon not just like the you know keith olbermann wrapped in an american flag you know for his glamour shot it was and... originally a syrian arab army flag they had to photoshop <laughs> it burned uh, it from my collection but it is like self-parody except they don't get it right. um but I mean, what, what do you make of that sector of twitter because of, of course they loathe you but it's you know, they loathe us too. Uh, right. But, I mean, what, like, what do you make of the of the people that actually, without kidding, use the hashtag the resistance? I don't think we're like waking every anyone up, but I think to hear us to say like, we think imperialism is evil. We think that many core characteristics of this country of our society are sick, and that there we have a lot of work to do. Things aren't great. Things are heading to be even worse if we don't fix on these systemic things. If you see that and it's successful and you have your set of solutions that are you think are kind of easy and it's this club, it's this cultural thing where you watch Sam B and you share these warty memes and you're the resistance and it's very pithy and smug and you have these established power structures you can go to. I think it is scary when there's a very loud voice saying, it's not this easy. And a lot of stuff is fucked up. But what I'm getting at is that there is a sort of one voice that's it's almost like this big, organic, ever evolving meme online, where you have people that had this kind of cultish notion that it was Hillary's turn. And anyone who didn't get that is Team Putin. You know, Jill, right. Jill Stein is a, you know, the Green Party candidate. We just had her on recently. We got bombarded with hate mail about that. Um, but, you know, basically anybody who wasn't waving the Hillary flag has been portrayed as responsible for the ascent of Trump. It's, I mean, when prophecy fails, right? Before the election, we're all browbeaten, like, you fucking idiots, you have no impact on this. She's going to crush Trump without you. Fuck you. You're a loser. Bernie's a loser. You're a loser. And then when she doesn't win, suddenly we're all powerful. All the people that said we were like a two-bit operation before the election now come at me screaming, saying we lost it for Hillary. Like we even have 50,000 listeners in Wisconsin. Probably not <laughs> that at all. But those people, they go into such psychosis about us and you guys because it's like, well, 
if you were saying America is already great and we're, you know, we're better than Trump, all these insane things. You know, I was thinking about when people were saying if Hamilton could see Trump, what he would th- the the guy who had all these friends and owned slaves, he he would think Trump's too racist. But you believe this myth about America and the world and your own beliefs, and when it fails, you will make any enemy much more powerful than they actually are. But because their perfect plan fell apart and America and the world is revealed to be not what they said it is, it has to be everyone conspired against them. You know, the day after the election was so instructive for me because we were heartbroken, but at the same time, we were like, well, we've, we've got work to do. For us, it was to go after the people that lost this for the DSA. They just fucking went out there and organized. You, you refer a Democratic Socialist of America, which, yeah. which is going through a renaissance right now. Yes. After years of kind of lying dormant, you have a lot of young people that are organizing under the right. banner of DSA. Right. They were like, well, this sucks, but we're going we're gonna to work even harder now. And they tripled their membership. The left hit the ground running on November 9th. And these people were just like, they retreated into fantasy. They thought that like we would de- declare the election void, fuck, looking for signs in Hillary tweets. And it was like they think that because we – everyone on the left started working that they planned this somehow or that they're not distraught by this. They don't think it's a big deal when the opposite is true. We think it's a fucking disaster even if we think that many of the things that Trump's doing are just extensions of problems we said existed. It's quite remarkable. I mean, anyone that knows the history of the former member of the British Parliament, Louise Mensch, oh, uh, you know, sees sees the you know the, the the kind of ridiculousness of the embrace of her now by the resistance. Yes. Um, what's your analysis of the kind of I don't want to even say rise of 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 the kind of presence of Louise Mensch now in our in our lives in this country? I think something very interesting happens with Trump where he immediately absolves all these fucking monsters, be the David Frum or Louis Mensch. You know, look at stuff Louis Mensch has said about immigrants. Like, Jesus Christ, it's as bad as Trump, sometimes even worse than things he said. I think that what goes on with some of these resistance people is they don't like that the mask is off with Trump and they want to rehabilitate the neocons and just any more polite or well-read revanchist like Manchester or someone, they want to go back to that being the opposition because things were easy then. They could pretend like a lot of these systemic problems didn't exist. And I think a lot of the most dumb shit they say is actually very instructive, like when they go, well, at least George Bush was a patriot. What the fuck does that mean? What the fuck does that mean? Did like, like Trump is going in there and he's like, well, time to destroy America. Liberals love these intentions they love saying that jfk didn't really want to go in vietnam no matter what he actually did they love saying that at least bush cared even despite the hundreds of thousands of dead bodies he piled up in the road that he paid for paid for trump but they want that to be their opposition because they don't like politics is a brutal contest of power and the allocation of resources well and there's that beautiful picture of bush hugging michelle obama i mean you know the other day uh, i um tweeted you know, I wonder which uh, reprehensible Trump administration official will later, you know, lead the resistance. And Eric Baylert, who is, yeah. you know, one of the he's up there with Eric Garland from Me- Media Matters. He, of course, didn't quote tweet it because he didn't want me to see the mention. But he he screen grabbed my tweet and then he said, you know, I'm I'm going to get this one framed. And then it had come into my timeline somehow, and I responded to him. You know, you can 
frame it right next to your uh, commemorative copy of David Frum's Axis of Evil speech and one of <laughs> George Bush's paintings from your personal collection. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, they, they, they really don't get it. And then, you know, I was bombarded with people saying, you know, like, well, so what? We're not supposed to welcome people like David Frum when they're right about something. And it's that that is that that's the whole narrative. I mean, Dick Cheney is one of the most evil people to mm. ever walk the globe. And he fucking literally shot someone in the face. Yeah. But it's like if, if Dick Cheney just sort of like inadvertently in passing made some critical remark of Trump, they would roll out the red carpet for him in the so-called resistance. Yeah. And they don't get it. They think that you're saying like everyone who opposes Trump is bad. When in reality, you're, of course, saying, like, these associations, these people paved the path for Trump. They've done horrible things. They should probably be in fucking prison. Why are you rehabilitating them? This is not better than Trump, the person you're associating with. But it's like they have trouble comprehending that because politics isn't policy or allocation of resources or power for them. It's a set of manners and cultural signifiers. So for you to say that, they see that and you're like, oh, Jeremy, of course, the Intercept bros don't get what politics is. It's when you you go on an epic monologue against Trump and he's not president anymore. And we have Orrin Hatch in there who does largely the same shit. So, But then we feel better. They don't get the cause and effect thing because they think Trump's an a- aberration. They think Trump's an aberration. So they think any conservative that they pick is like will bring us back to the path we should have been going on. But since they're completely revisionist in their understanding of history and because they don't see war as this big moral problem, which is really insane when you think about it. It used to be World War One and World War Two and Vietnam. They sort of dispelled people's notions of war as this noble enterprise. People always thought their country did the most moral things in war. But I think that because wealth is so stratified and these people – like a Bolaire or someone, they probably don't know a lot of people who have had to go into the military because they couldn't afford anything because we mostly stick with people of our own classes now. We're very gilded age. And because we know so few people that went into war and the voices we do hear, what's what's the liberal voice on the left? It's someone who's like, "Uh, I went to war, sir. Donald Trump, you didn't serve your country, bitch. I did. I killed all these people. (laughs) Like it's, it'll be like someone who went to Vietnam and it's like, why are we celebrating this? We did awful things over there, but they think war is like a noble pursuit and that we do it morally. Right. And, and a scumbag in a coma is still a scumbag. And I, you know, I think part of this sort of fake notion that when people die, uh, I mean, I've joked on your show before that I, you know, I want to do a segment on this called Piss on Their Graves, like when Henry Kissinger yeah. dies. I mean, I don't... He might outlive uh, all of us, though, <laughs> that fucker. He could, yeah. He's like, he is like Yeltsin in a way. Yeltsin, I think, is still... He and Ariel Sharon are in like the two cryogenic chambers next to each other. <laughs> well, Yeltsin was like pickled in alcohol, <laughs> but Sharon was... He woke up from his coma that he got because he was like just morbidly obese. And to celebrate it, like at the press conference they had at the hospital, he literally ate an entire bag of chips in front of reporters and like... Within like weeks, went back in the coma. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, what do you make of you know that this um, the kind of politeness police are out in force because of this shooting that happened at the Republican practice for the congressional baseball game? And you know, Representative Scalise, of course, is a total scumbag on the core issues that lead to things right. like like mass shootings. But it's like no one is allowed to point out the obvious, which is that the very policies on guns, in particular that many of these Republicans hold 
that that's at the root of why these kinds of shootings happen and why he is in the condition that he's in. The fact is that Paul Ryan and his cabal in the Congress, they love the idea that, you know, white men can have as many guns as they want in this country. I mean, what what do you think about that concern trolling from the establishment media on the issue of when bad people die or when they are critically injured? It's funny how we're pretending like everyone in Congress is brave. Like we made them troops because one of those assholes got shot. Like he didn't even die. Like why Why are we making them? They have health care and resources and protection. None of us, most of us could never even fucking imagine. And I got quote tweeted and the guy said, oh yeah, he deserves to die for being Republican. And I looked at who quote tweeted me. It was a Nazi with a swastika avatar. <laughs> like, yeah, that sucks when you make light of people's deaths or their harm to them. We should really be more civil. Uh, but I think it has something to do with conceptions of violence. Like, shit, Scalise or Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi, for that matter, does to people. It's violent. It's violent to fucking rip away people's health care, to make them go bankrupt for, to get care, to do all these massive wars to make it easier for people like people who shouldn't have guns to have guns to militarize the police all this shit that directly kills people but because it's politics because we have this idea of politics as a civil enterprise with just competing cultural signifiers we're like oh it's a game the republicans won the game this time but there's no reason you should hate them you know trump's a russian traitor but for some reason the the people in his party that enable him and vote for his agenda aren't. I don't know how that works, but we shouldn't act like he's some fucking hero or martyr for civility. He's a piece of shit. He experienced the rational outcome of policies he has supported, and he regularly commits violence against millions of people. And... I don't, I don't really want anyone to die. I don't want political assassinations. I think that's bad. But the fucking toothpaste is already out of the tube, so to speak. The, we live in a violent system. And yeah, you know what? We fucking pass AHCA, which pieces of shit like Steve Scalise voted for. And the, the thought that you can, having a fucking joint press conference with Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan, two people that everyone fucking despises. So tomorrow we'll go out on the field, we'll root for our team, we we'll want everyone to do his or her very best, and we will use this occasion as one that brings us together and not separates us further. And with that again, like that's going to bring civility back when they, their future is gone, they'll go bankrupt if they get a fucking MRI, and they can just buy a gun but they can't even see a therapist? Like that's going to do anything? The story that you wrote about Saudi Arabia, which you know was excellent, came out. Uh, Thank you. December, yeah, December of last year. Right. It's called your your app isn't helping the people of Saudi yeah. Arabia, and you wrote that for Deadspin. And some people may have a cartoonish view of you, and I say cartoonish not in a demeaning way, but that they think that that your entire existence is being funny or being a comedy writer or uh, you know your personality on uh, Chapo Trap House. But you actually have an incredible depth of knowledge on conflicts in the Muslim and Arab world, and you, you have a particular interest in Saudi Arabia. First question, just like how did that come about? It does really seem like a disconnect between the personality that you are and some of what you do, and then you write like a really serious article about Saudi Arabia. 
you know, people think that like if you're in a very ironic person, it means you don't give a shit about anything. And I think the total opposite is true. I think that some of the most compassionate people I've known, you barely ever see them make a serious post. And I'm not saying I'm one of them, but it's like, it, it, it's a way that you can look at the horrors of the world and not drive yourself fucking insane. Like if you can look at everything all the time and be totally serious, I kind of doubt how how much you care because it really is a bunch of awful shit to look at. But as far as like my, my interest in Saudi Arabia, while I was, um, you know, as a child during the Bush years and there were all of those great pictures of King Fod and Bush like kissing, it was in the news a lot. It was a huge thing in the news. It was just so fascinating you know, you're told that there are no real monarchies left, but there's this one that's not just like a king with a fair bit of power like Liechtenstein. It's absolute total control. Foreign policy has always been more interesting to me and I th- because I think it's a moral problem. I think it's a, insane that we don't think of the death and oppression that we enable and that we see all over the world as a moral problem. And I... It's just sort of by being online and kids being savvy enough to use proxies and stuff. I've been lucky enough to meet the acquaintance of a lot of Saudis. And it's easy to look at these countries. It's easy to get in this trap of sort of imperialist mindset, especially if you live in America where you're like, Saudi Arabia is evil. Ever, you know, most of the people there, they know what's going on. When in reality, it's a totalitarian state. And say most of the people living there, that's how they experience it. And it was you know, something that happened in the last three years. Talking to these people made me see the reality and nonstop horror and fear that they live in. And it started out as a thing about how I noticed that a lot of like Gulf accounts would dox people, would dox people who were atheists or migrant workers. And it became just from talking to them, they were the people's lives were really fucking sad. There's very little writing about what people's lives are like over there. It was really heartbreaking. A lot of these kids who have to hide their identities to even talk about their identities as as LGBT or uh, religious minorities or atheists or especially migrant workers. That's the worst thing you can be over there. A migrant worker who speaks out. They're often suicidal. They don't feel like they can trust anyone. It's a fucking awful existence. They're often just killed by sometimes family members of the state or just any extra legal process but you know you go to their pages it's not like you know fuck me what what is the point of my life which is completely understandable like I feel like I would do that but you go to them and it's just all solidarity it's solidarity with Palestinians it's solidarity with uh, black Americans being killed by the police and it's like even under their experience, they see that these struggles are interconnected and that all oppression is interconnected and that they would have every right in the world to just talk about their situation, but they don't. It made me want to kind of tell their story because it is as horrible and sad as it is and how much it makes you feel about your own country because we've backed so much of this up. It also does kind of make you feel hopeful that even... In a, where they don't even really have full internet access, can see the world in a much clearer vision than a lot of people here. Final question. Do you think Trump is, uh, is he going to finish a term as president? That's a good question. I mean, I- Not I, really, but go ahead, you can answer it. No, I mean, like it's, I oscillated on it. I oscillated on it. Any week you ask, like, you remember when he was, right before he went to Saudi Arabia and it's like everything happened. It was right after Comey, Jared- 
they hit Jared with the back channel to the Russians shit. And he tweets out like, it's almost time for my big trip. <laughs> Protecting America's interests is what I like to do. And it was just like, <laughs> very normal. I'm a normal president, everybody. Everything's going great. And I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, he's fucked. He's going to like not be president on the flight back to America. But he just he has a way of like surviving. And I think that. I don't know. It's. I think he hates doing it. Every time you see him talk about Hillary, you have to think like he's doing that because he's so mad he has to do this job. He doesn't want to do this shit, but he's a quitter, but he's also like a very spiteful person. So I think that he thinks if he quits, everyone's going to be like, ah, I told you he's a fucking – he's full of shit. He's not going to do anything. And I think for Trump, it's a contest between the two things. How stymied is he going to get? by all the fucking weird liars he hired, <laughs> like Flynn and Jared, who, you know, even if there's not like a Luis Men, she's a Russian deep cell agent. There's something weird going on. Just you, you get enough compromised people, something weird will go on. And how, how spiteful he is for everyone he feels like has doubted him. I don't know what will win out. He's, I think it's wrong to say he's lazy, but he's not good at the hard work he does unless it's building buildings. And uh, I can see him rationalizing in his mind, like, yeah, I, I actually, I did everything I wanted to do. And then this, like uh, all my enemies got back at me at once. I think it would be funniest if he quits like six months from now, it's Pence, and then he primaries Pence in 2020. That would be the best outcome. It would be <laughs> the funniest shit. Uh, Chelsea will beat them both anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chelsea, Chelsea unity ticket to unify the left. <laughs> Chelsea Manning and uh, Chelsea Clinton. All right, Felix, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Felix Biederman is one of the founding hosts of Chapel Trap House. He's also a freelance writer. And that does it for this week's show. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZidoro, and our executive producer is Letal Mulad. Rick Kwan mixed the show, and we had production assistance from Elise Swain. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. I'm going to be gone next week, so my colleague Mehdi Hassan is going to be filling in for me. I will be back on July 12th. Until then, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Thank you for having me, you Putin bros. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.